Welcome to the All About Setwork podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things setwork. That can include chain tips, a behind-the-scenes look at what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, I had the distinct privilege of speaking with the co-founders of NACSW, Amy Haro and Jill Marie O'Brien. Before we start diving into the episode itself, let me do a very quick introduction of myself. My name is Diana Santos. I'm the owner and lead instructor for Setwork University. This is an online dog training platform that's designed to help you achieve your setwork training goals. So whether you're just getting started, looking to develop some more advanced skills, you're interested in trialing, or maybe you're trialing already, even at the upper levels, we likely have a training solution for you. <laughs> so that you know a little bit more about me, let's dive into the episode itself. So for this episode, I had the distinct privilege of speaking to the co-founders of NECSW, Amy Haro and Jill Marie O'Brien. Let's not waste any more time and let's dive into the conversation. I want to thank you both so very much for joining me for this conversation today. Uh, do you mind if you just both do a quick little introduction for you both? I'm terrible at these. <laughs> and I'd much rather that you just let us know what your background is first, and then we'll start diving into the conversation. Hi, I'm Jill Marie O'Brien. I'm co-founder of National Association of Canine Scent Work and Canine Nose Work, uh, respectively. I have been working with and training dogs for 35 or so years and spent 15 of those years running a behavior and training department for a large animal shelter here in the Southern California area. And I have been spending the bulk of my time over the last decade plus with Amy Haro, my partner in crime. And we'll talk a little bit more about our third uh, partner who is no longer with us in a moment. And I also had the luxury of uh, handling a dog as a narcotics detection dog, along with Amy, who uh, co-handled my dog. So I, I've been working with dogs for quite a long time. I'm down to my two Malinois and a little tiny yapper and just enjoying being a dog person, not a dog worker all the time. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amy Haro. I'm one of the three founders of the National Association of Canine Scent Work and the Sport of Canine Nose Work. And I have been training dogs for over 25 years, over 20 of those specifically in detection, where I started in narcotics detection and explosive detection and handled two of my own personal dogs, along with a slew of other dogs, including co-handling Jill's dog. And I also was a, an instructor for narcotics detection. So I did that in the private sector for quite a long time. And that's what brought Ron and Jill and I together actually was working, you know, to bring this activity to a lot of dogs and their people without the risks that come with those other kinds of detection activities. So we're delighted to be here with you, Diana, today to talk a little bit more about what we do and what we think about odor. Well, I want to thank you both so very much for sharing all of your background and for starting this with Ron. Again, the gift that you've given to the dog community, I don't, I hope that you, all of you appreciate just what you've done and being able to help people better see their dogs and the way that the dogs light up when they go, do you actually understand me for a second? Wow. Oh, wait a minute. No, you lost it. Okay. The two-legged person's ignoring me again, but they saw me for a second. So I really do appreciate that you guys created this for us. What I want to talk about today was, it's a giant topic and we're going to try to to nail it down, is your understanding as far as the activity that you both, all three of you created for us is this concept about odor, because a lot of us who come into it, maybe we fall into it for, you know, someone suggested it like, oh, you should try that nose work thing. 
or maybe we're like really deep into it as instructors. Maybe we're competing. We're with dog number six, <laughs> but odor is so complicated. So I wanted to talk to both of you to have a better understanding about this and how it diverges from our human visual understanding of, hey, I put a hide over there. Why doesn't my dog just find it? <laughs> Why are they checking out other spaces? And then what you guys think about as far as how people should be viewing this from a handling and training standpoint, as opposed to a trialing standpoint. So to start off, if you wanted to give us a little bit of an understanding as far as what you think people should be doing as far as better understanding odor or having them understand just how complicated it is, perhaps would be a good place to start. Which one would like to tackle that first? <laughs> I'll give it a go to get started. I mean, I think we've always thought about the dogs that we're in in their world, you know, that their their world is through their nose, their worldview, not their eyes the way we have it. So we can never really know for sure. So anything that Jill and I have an opinions about or anybody else for that matter, we don't really know what the dogs are thinking or experiencing. And I think that's where we have to give them a lot of credit, you know, and people have been training dogs and using their natural talents for hundreds more years. I mean, I, I don't even, I can't think of when we was probably the first scenting dog that was used for hunting in some way, but we have benefited from their natural instincts. And that that's kind of the basis of what's really informed what we're doing is that we're harnessing their power. We're not, Ron always used to say, we're not teaching them anything. They know how to do this. And so I think one of the things that's hard is when we're asking the dog to use that a, ability to find something we want, a selected thing that we condition them through whatever, you know, the particular training methodology, there are many that people could apply for the dog to have this learning. We have to be careful not to think of it in kind of the human terms where it's not about touching a visual target. It's about the dog understanding the strength and concentration of the odor that they must identify. We have to trust in the dog's ability to understand what's happening, that we, that our idea of source or what's inaccessible or what's happening to the odor picture, that's our job to learn about how the dog sees these things and to not make assumptions about how the odor is moving and let the dog really be the teacher of what is the experience for them. Perfect. Jill, did you want to build off of that at all? To kind of just add a little bit to what Amy was just talking about is the fact that, you know, this thing that we're asking the dogs to locate has actually no value to them whatsoever. And it has no value until it's important because it's important to us where we then make it important to them. And, you know, we're asking them to solve very complex problems for something that really in the scheme of their natural everyday lives would have very little relevance. And I think there's a lot of anxiety and stress in what happens between the human piece and worrying about how important the dog finds this thing and needing to rely on the dog for this information of something that the, the human actually cannot accomplish. They need to have the dog. And so the, the inclination of on the human side, of course, is to create all these kind of stop gaps or safety measures to ensure that the dog does it in a way that the human can identify, you know, as opposed to taking the time to really understand how the dog is processing information and spending time observing the dog globally. Like 
you know, being a, a drone, you know, like just looking down at what's happening with the dog. So when you come across complex scenarios and training, you have a better understanding of what the dog's communicating and not trying to be so specific about things that may not actually be relevant in that particular moment. And, and it was interesting because somebody was saying, you know, odors, I think you had mentioned about odor being complicated. And what went through my head at that moment was odor is not complicated. Odor is very simple. What happens to odor in the environment and the environmental conditions that affect that hide or that odor, that's what's complicated. And that's where I think people have challenges because there's sometimes they're just not understanding what the dog's communicating or how the dog's how the dog's evaluating that environment and taking in information if that makes sense you know Um, yeah that, that makes perfect sense i think one of the interesting things you touched on jill was that we're creating the value of what we want the dogs to find and it's it's really remembering that you know they they're living beings right they aren't just robots they're not they're not tools that fit a certain model. And in the professional world, you would select for a dog who actually maybe does meet certain parameters. They, they have a certain style, they have a certain tenacity, they certain level of drive, but you know, the beauty of the sport or the activity of canine nose work or, or any of the other versions of that that are out there now is that this is really a way for us to engage with our dogs, our companion, whether they're high level competition sport dogs, or whether they're a shelter rescue dog, whatever the the blend of things are that make up that dog we live with, this companion animal lives with us and communicates with us 24 seven. And it's just adding nuance to the language that you already share with your dog and playing a game with them that provides them an outlet that they get to define a little bit on their terms, rather than say, you're a tool who must adhere to this set of rules. And I think, that's when we talk about getting a chance to understand how the dogs work odor. That's really what's so much behind why we're doing things the way we do it is to really embrace who that individual dog is and to allow ourselves to be the student of the dog in that sense, in terms of what we can learn about odor from how many, many dogs work certain problems over and over again. And that, that's a really good segue to something that I wanted to talk about as far as really helping people understand. Because again, as humans, I think that we get tunnel vision or we get very focused, uber focused on very specific details. So I want to try to broaden this out so that people can see the patterns. Before we started recording, we were talking about dogs working to find food and how I, I would love for Jill to talk about this again, as far as they're trying to find a piece of food and then people are like, oh, why can't they just find this? It's right there. <laughs> so so talking about that, but then also how that may also represent itself in other types of training. And then also for trial prep, but also at trial, because I do think there's a through line through all of that of recognizing that these are not furry humans, that we are very different and we don't have the same experience as our dogs. So did you want to talk about that really quick, Jill, as far as the dog's experience with even just finding quote unquote, just food, and then we can go from there? Well, you know, it's it's really funny because people so much, you know, think about, you know, using, you know, a primary rewards, let's say, in this case, food. And obviously, um, myself and a lot of other people also use toy rewards. And, and but that's a little bit of a different dynamic. And I think people kind of discount or disregard the value and challenges that the dog can be exposed to just using something that the dog just really wants naturally without the 
encumbering encumbrance of this, you know, secondary thing that we're going to eventually make important, right? I think people disregard the value of that. But what I find so interesting is when you're using something like food and the dog, it's like out in the open almost. And like, we can all see it, right? We can all find it and see it and whatnot. And the dog see, appears to have seen it, but moves past it as if they don't recognize it. And I tell people, I go, you know, the dogs don't understand what, you know, they don't necessarily know what food looks like. They don't know what a a hot dog looks like per se in the context of this other uh the scheme of the search environment that we're creating they but they know what it smells like right and so you know they'll often walk past it and then they have to work back to it. they have to they search back to their food is right and people just think well my dog has a terrible nose they walked right over the food i'm like well because the odor of that food is going a completely different direction they don't know that 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 the odor at that moment is coming from that thing that they don't recognize as food. I'm like, and this is why using something like a primary reward can really help the dog work through a lot of problem solving and challenges. And we can set up a lot of exercises using without messing up potentially in the future, something to do with odor that we cannot change. Once they're on an odor, that's their odor they're going to be training and competing on. Or if they're working dogs, that's what they're being, you know, hired to find. You you don't want to mess that up in the beginning stages. And I just find it really interesting how quickly people are to discount their dogs during those developmental phases. Um, same thing with, you know, can't the dog see the ball in the grass? I'm like, well, no, not necessarily. It's blending in with the grass or it's a color that fades into the other background colors because the dogs have a different type of vision. They don't see colors in the same spectrum that we do. And maybe the choice of colors you decided on a ball, you know, they can't see it against the background, perhaps. I mean, I, you know, it's, I don't know. I'm not the dog. And it's like Amy was saying, you know, we don't know how the dog's experiencing the world and we make assumptions based on how we see the world and how we move through our environments. And we assume that that's how the dog's going to experience it as well. And even people that say that they don't, or people that are all about, you know, the dog, when they have the conversations, they, you can hear in the conversations that they actually are not. They're anthropomorphizing their experiences almost for lack of a better way of describing it onto the dog, like the dog's having those same experiences. I'm sure there's a better word and that's not the right word, but I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. It's interesting, Jill, that you, uh, you know, just, I think Diana said just food. And for some reason I was struck in that moment, you know, what Jill talked about that kind of diminishment or discounting of the food as somehow not as cool or doesn't require as much talent, but it's how they survive. Like that is, it's the most instinctive thing. Wouldn't that be the strongest training of all to actually tap into what they are instinctively going to use to, you know, in order to survive. So anyway, I just think it's, it, it struck me all of a sudden when you were saying that Jill, that that's the power of it, right? Because you're, you're not, you're not messing with mother nature. That's going to be what they want to do. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, not to discount the value and the power of a lot of other uh, philosophies and things as it relates to the imprinting of odor and stuff. But I think it's just, uh, you know, as you're coming at it from different perspectives, like how how is the dog interpreting that? Like the assumptions that everybody makes, even even in my for myself, you know, sometimes you make assumptions, you just go by the best 
information you have and you make a plan from there. But nobody knows exactly what the dog is finding the most value in. If you're, you know, nose targeting a tin of odor, what is the thing that's valuable to the dog? Is it the odor or is it the tin? Or is it the odor of the tin? Is it the nose touching of the tin? It's like, it becomes very, very, you know, we're making assumptions all the time, right? I mean, I just, I think it's the the assumptions all the time. I mean, that you see it even in your everyday life, you know, with the people you live with and your friends that are, you know, uh, family members just moving around the dogs that you have, you know, on the assumptions that they, that the dogs should know, or the dogs, they should know not to do this. And they should, and, you know, it's like, it, why should they? And why should they want to do, to search if they don't have to in their everyday lives for survival? Why should they find value in odor just because we've said to them, we think it's important if you find it, we'll give you a cookie. I mean, but still, why should it, you know, uh, you know, I, th I just think that there's just a lot of human pieces that uh, come into the fray that I interfere with what the dog's actually demonstrating. Absolutely. And I think that both of you really highlighted this piece that I wanted to talk about with this episode is the human end of this is really the weak link of the whole thing. The dogs are amazing. The dogs are incredible, but we are the ones that are defining the rules for the game, whether you're just doing the activity or if you're trying to compete. And we're designing rules based on something that we cannot see and we cannot experience. And we're trying to design rules and the dog's like, that doesn't really make any sense for what this odor is actually doing. I'll try my best. <laughs> but, you know, I, I wish you guys would work with me a little bit. So can you talk about what it is that people should do, regardless of what it is that your, your goals are? If you just want to play for fun, which I, I do not like the way that's framed, but if you want to do the activity or if you want to prepare for trial to better assist your dog to play the game in a way that is more successful for them. Is there ways that people can better design their training and or do other types of learning on their own to have a better appreciation for how they're potentially even designing their searches or what they can expect and or see or read when they see other searches that maybe someone else set up? Whoever would like to go first. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, Amy? You tap into things to me that Ron talked about because he was not really a fan of competition at first for all the things that you just described, Diana, that you know, we're we're passing judgment on a dog based on some arbitrary human rules about these assumptions about how we think things are going to be. And anybody who knows enough about training and the way dogs generalize things, you know, if you constantly had a tin that is visible and the dog puts its nose on it, it might not recognize the scent in a different context if it's presented differently, right? That's one of like the most basic things about training in general and why you have to work a lot to get the dog to have understanding about what is the signature scent that is that you're creating the value around. And so I think one of the things that Ron didn't like about the rules of competition, and, and we both really understand this, and, you know, and he went along with it anyway, you know, he was like, okay, but there's going to be problems. And he was right, you know, that we're assessing who's right or wrong based on what we think. And all you have in the competition arena is really the, your knowledge of odor, of having watched thousands of dogs work, of looking at all the dogs that day, of having some understanding about the airflow that might be happening in the environment or, you know, just the wind. I mean, we're all knowledgeable about what happens, you know, 
you you can smell when the barbecue is coming from the you know other side of the field you know you you're you could follow it to the source right so i think that's the hardest thing about training and trialing is that in training there's a lot of forgiveness that you can have and you're building understanding but if you want to compete you're subjecting yourself to whatever rules of the organization that has created the competition so obviously any csw's rules are rooted in what our mission was about and for people to have a good experience for the dog where we give the dog a lot of credit for its ability to navigate this really strange environment and to widen the net to allow a lot of different kinds of dogs and people to participate because we think it's so enriching for the relationship between the human and the dog. Perfect. Bill, did you want to build on that at all? No, I think Amy really kind of explained that really, really well as to what it is that people, that, what the person's expectations are, especially when they're in the competition side. And I thought it was interesting when you were first starting about, you know, just doing it for fun. And it's the word just mm -hmm. that I think is the, is the thing that just kind of makes people discount the value of something because it's just for fun. It's just to, and it's just enri for enrichment. It's just for this, or, you know, it's the word just is, can really undermine the real value of something when you use the word just. And I think people need to think about it. it's they're, well, they're not just searching for food. They're searching for something that's of extremely high value and sorting out increasingly difficult problems that, you know, we're setting up to keep the game, you know, to build the game and help them build a understanding and to help them have expectations of what they're going to come up like so when they they see a vehicle like they have an expectation that in, in this context and when this happens this is what my expectations tell me is going to happen and you know we can use all that stuff as we're building the dogs you know forward and I, I do think it's like you know when we were talking recently Amy and you were talking about that article I wrote years ago about just the pet dog you know, why I don't like th that term anymore. We're, you know, because it's, and I think it's really the word just, that's the problem. That's you a know? really good, that's an excellent point. And I will try to be more mindful about that, even for myself. And, and when I talk it, about it. No, 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 it I just know. Really struck, it, struck a, <laughs> it struck a nerve because I realized like it's, you know, because we talk about is what is it that kind of changes somebody's mindset? And I think it's it's a word like that because, you know, we always say, well, I'm, I, I'm just screwing around when it actually means something important to us, but we don't want people outside to know it's important to us because if it doesn't go well, we don't feel held accountable. So we, well, I'm just screwing around right now. I'm not really doing this for seriously, you know, like that kind of thing. Almost it implies a lack of seriousness. You know, it's yeah. not a serious competitor if you're just having fun. And I right. just don't think they need to be mutually exclusive. <laughs> right. You know? So, and you know, the thing is about competition, going back to kind of your original question, what are people supposed to do? There are these rules. So we created these rules that in our minds mimicked some of the things that we might encounter from different parts of certification or validation. Some people, it depends what discipline you're doing, which term you use, but, you know, kind of take those pieces that would be encountered by somebody working in the detection field. And what we decided was that, you know, obviously it takes years to train a detection dog, 
uh, if you're including the time where, you know, you're developing their drive and all of, and the games and all those things. And in searching for toys and primer. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. But you know, the, <laughs> before uh, you just put them on odor, I can do know, odor like right away. Dog, there's a certain amount. I mean, I know that technically you could take a dog who's ready to go and put them on the odors very quickly, but the reliability that you would want and who that dog is, that's what takes the bulk of the time. You know, it mimics some of these things like the rules that you would get in certain aspects of detection. But we also realize that since it takes so long, to really get this reliable detection. You just can't throw people into the first competition and expect something that is a recreation to be like equal to you going out in the field with a professional dog, right? So we we arbitrarily created some steps of things that let you get there. So we could play with the competition piece and work people up to what would be more like our detection trials or, you know, actual field work and detection. So, you know, that's kind of the basis behind, you know, the ORT and then the NW1 and NW2. We add layers and layers and this way it let people not do too much too fast and they could dip their toe in the water to see if their dog even liked it versus just saying, oh, my dog does, isn't cut out for it. And it doesn't really give that time to cultivate who that dog is. You know, whereas in professional detection, you're starting with an already, you know, great bit of raw material. And then you're putting, you know, putting that dog on odor and it goes really fast. But, you know, if you're trying to tease out that inner hunter in the dog who kind of has flattened out or, you know, they've just been inhibited because of life skills or experiences, or they've been very over controlled in their life experiences. So they don't have any sense of independent decision-making. Those are all the things that we, in training, that's what we're looking to kind of tease out and cultivate in the dog. And that's perfect. And I really do appreciate the thought that you put into this. And the big thing that I wanted to highlight was the basically slowing people down and how it is very focused on the dog. But I would also argue it's also forcing people to develop their own skills that if they were just throw in to the deep end of the pool, that they don't know how to read their dogs. They don't know how to use a leash. They don't know how to cover the search area. They don't know what they're looking at. That would be a disaster, right? That would just be bad. And the one thing about nose work that I've noticed through my limited time during in the industry is that the focus is always on the dog, that the handlers forget that they're a very important piece. We don't want you taking over the dog's job, but you actually matter. You have to learn, you have to develop your own skills and that that is such a gift for you to be able to do so. So the fact that the competition side was thoughtfully designed in this step process is absolutely for the benefit of the dog. But I would argue also for the handler that if you wanted to do well, you need to pick these things up because otherwise you're going to languish. And if that's important to you, those ribbons and those titles and those little tiny letters, they carry some weight <laughs> and you have to do the work in order to do those things. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about during this conversation was the thought process that you both have put in all three of you for the competition side of training your officials. So your CEOs and your judges, that they are the ones who again are subjectively scoring these searches. So can you talk about that a little bit as far as what education that they're going in, what their training is like, what experience that they may have and what people can expect? Because I think that there's a very big misunderstanding of what that actually is. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, well, they just there, they say yes and no. And anyone could do that. I could do that. Maybe not so much. So which one of you would like to talk about that really quick? 
I'll start off, Jill, if you don't no. mind. No, I mean, I think one of the things to note is we decided very early on, even though uh, in the beginning, we, we, a lot of uh, our judges were only professional people who were, who did professional detection that has expanded somewhat, but we wanted that to one, because it was fun for people to get to have the opinions of professionals upon, on, you know, the work that they were doing in canine nose work. And also for a lack of bias about, you know, any of the dogs or knowing any of the dogs, it was just somebody who wasn't teaching them at first. And so that was, that was another piece of it. And so the hide setting and the way the search is designed were developed the certifying official program because that way we had control over the hide design being very much reflective of our mission and what we wanted at these different levels. Whereas, you know, somebody who's training explosives all day long and comes to judge isn't going to spend time learning about the way our odors work or what could be expected of the membership that participates in these competitions. So we, that's somewhat how those roles got developed. And in the beginning, it was us as the founders doing all of the hide placement and the original CEOs, you know, I'm so impressed that they did this. I mean, they just literally shadowed us and followed us around and were our instructors and our students. And they, you know, did their best to absorb information and kind of, you know, replicate to their to the best of their ability to, to these kinds of hide scenarios. And over time, I mean, anybody who's been around nose work probably suffered some early trials. We we made mistakes. We learned things. We changed things. We evolved. We listened to our membership. We watched the trials. We analyzed the trials. We made lots of shifts based on what we learned about the odor, what we learned about the competitors, what we learned about the training environments being different from what people experience when they go to trial. And our whole process has evolved based on gaining all of that information, which then led to the development of our program for certifying officials where we do a tremendous amount of training. And Wendy Crable, who was our who was our national trial director for many, many years, was a big part of that. And Gene Richardson is now the person really heading up all that CO education. And our biggest goal has been as we've scaled up and taken this, you know, across the country after starting with the first trials in Los Angeles, was to make sure that we had a standard and a quality and a cohesion for the rules and the process that would that would scale up and and be consistent across the country that you could expect relatively similar results in Massachusetts as you could in California with but without it being cookie cutter right like so i think right. one of the the draws is that unlike so many other types of dog sports that nose work, just generically speaking, or, or coming from us, you know, canine nose work is fluid. It's never, you're, a dog walk is always going to be a dog walk, no matter where you put it in the middle of an agility field. But, you know, odor is always going to be, is going to change. Environments are going to, going to be different. How everything, climate's going to affect it. It's never going to be the same. And I think, you know, that is also a, a component of the, that there's this sort of novelty from trial to trial that it, I think it keeps it fresh also and interesting that it's never this, it's never going to be the same. And that's what ha I think what sometimes in the training piece, 
everybody wants to train to a rule book, but the rule book is basically the parameters of how the trial will be set up and what you can real you can expect relative to other uh, things that might be happening on a, any given day with the environment and, and setups. But it's what's happening with the training has got to be way, way uh, broader than what you might might be thinking about, well, what's in the rule book, right? Like, I think this is where sometimes people have this this kind of internal conflict between what the, the rule book says, which is the guideline for how we set up trials and what you should actually be thinking about from a training perspective. And, and because from, since, you know, when we sort of developed this whole program and it, you know, became the sport and everything that it, it has this mimics, it kind of that detection world of where you just, you get in, you go out on the day, you never know what you're going to come across, right? Like you don't know what your dog is going to have to serve. You know what they're going to maybe be looking for, but you don't know where and how and under what conditions and all those kind of things. And, you know, that the sort of the, the little bit of excitement about that is kind of what came on the sports side. And that is a really hard thing for people that come from the dog sport world where rules were very, um, narrowly defined and you know you know like a down contact is a down contact and a straight sit is a straight sit but you know you know like you were saying earlier if odor may be here and moving there and dog has to work out that problem and how they can get to things and how they might have to sort and what the handler understands about their dog and how things happen in different environments that all has to come in it's like it all needs to meet all at the same time to get into the zone, right? And and have it all, all play out. And I think that's also kind of what makes it exciting is the same things that make it so frustrating. That is um, an excellent way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately it's like everything that makes it like kind of fun and exciting is really the same things that are frustrating and like, ah, you know, at the Which goes time. back to Ron's issue with competition because the whole thing is how do you standardize something that's going to be novel every time? So every CO going to a new location, you know, they're, they don't know exactly how everything works in that location. They make an educated guess based on the training they've received. And this is why we require them to have a certain amount of not just training with us, but they had to have been teaching or they to even apply to the CO program. They had to have some real field work in advance of becoming a CO so that they have that firsthand experience of what happens when you watch, you, you know, we all learn when we see a dog, you know, 10 different dogs do the same thing. We're like, huh, all oh, the odors getting sucked up by the HVAC system or, you know, whatever it is, or look at that, the door opened and closed like bellows and all the odors going to that back corner. You know, those are the things that you can only know from watching hundreds of dogs and many dogs working the same thing. So what, but that going back to your original comment, then how do people train? Because there's this rule book and they're going to get a yes from one judge and a no from another, and they want to just do it right. And we really understand that. And so it's been, you know, we have a rules committee that meets, you know, several times a year and goes over different things that have come in or issues that arise. And this is how we evolve these rules. And, we're always looking at how to better define what we're doing. And we're also, because we're evolving, that those definitions may shift a little bit over time based on what we're seeing in the field and what we have access to for trials. We've had to make adaptations just because 
people want more trials. And so we have to look at what do we have access to that still maintains a standard. Right. Right. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand is that I give you all so much credit for what you're trying to do. <laughs> I'm trying to, to thread this needle and it is incredibly difficult and very complicated, but from handler standpoints, and even for trainers and instructors, if we can take a little bit more onus as far as our responsibilities of what we can do as people, mm. you all offer this fantastic thing of your virtual walkthroughs where you offer this lovely thing. Sometimes there are debriefs as well that are posted. That is a fantastic piece of information that people would have access to. That volunteering at trials, please do this so that you can see it. When, if you have an opportunity to work with a reputable instructor in person, take those group classes. If you can't do it with your dog in person, audit and watch the other dogs run. If you're doing things with friends, set up a search and have your friends' dogs run them too. Film it, watch it back, post it on Facebook or YouTube and use the slowdown option. Use this time to really have a better understanding. Allow the dogs to teach you and just have a little bit of humility that you have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and there are all these people that NACSW has been working with throughout their whole program that have been dedicating themselves to bettering themselves and learning and adjusting and being flexible and reacting to all these different changes and needs and wants, but that is the dogs that know and the dogs aren't the ones running anything. <laughs> yeah. And we try our uh, best yeah. and they give you a lot of credit. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what our numbers are now, but it's certainly over 400 trials a year. It's probably even way more than that now. And every Monday morning, Gene Richardson is going through all those debriefs, reviewing all the CEO's hides, you know, talking to them about what, you know, looking at, you know, how people did, what are the things that went wrong? Are those things that we have control over, don't have control over, you know, as we have shifting parameters to, you know, is what are the results of that? You know, is it a, are there different regional differences? We're doing a lot of data analysis all the time behind the scenes. And that's really important for people to understand that this isn't just simply a, hey, here's this thing. Okay, you go forth. Oh, you gave us your money. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Like there's a lot of thought behind all of this. And I can speak for this personally. I am a CNWI, full disclosure. I went through your education program. It was very well thought out. And there's all this continuing education, again, to have the opportunity to try to improve yourself. And understand that the education piece is truly on the handler side. We're not teaching the dogs a damn thing. <laughs> if anything, we're just giving them the ability to do the thing. If we could get out of the way and be like, look, I'll set up the search. You just stand there and look pretty. I will then go find it. And then you can give me a cookie. Would be fantastic, but they can't do that. <laughs> well, and what an amazing connection it is. You know, some of the sport design is also, um, you know, it's not that everybody should walk away with a ribbon, right? I mean, obviously competition, the nature of competition is that some people end up at the top and some people don't. But we want it to be supportive of what the relationship is and for it to be doable for people, but to not underestimate the dog, right? To give the dog enough credit that, um, you know, a number of, I first heard this from Christina Bunn, but a number of people have said versions of this, that we need to rise up to the level of the dog. And so we're going to set the challenges to be that which we think the dogs are really capable of and put the onus on the handler to elevate their, their training and their observation to embrace who that dog is and really get to learn who their dog is through that, those sort of various steps that happen. And 
so it's this balance because we we're it is a membership organization and we want people to participate and if everyone was miserable then that we'd, we'd be really sad about that so we're trying to find the balance of you know of making it an enjoyable experience and one that feels satisfying competitively that provides some training goals that give you something to work at that over time that you get to you know stretch the muscle even more that you know it ta taxes you to have more and more skills that you can apply and learn and work towards. And so that's really the design. And, you know, if, if we heard strongly from the membership one way or the other, then, you know, obviously we would consider all, you know, we do consider all the things people, many people write to us, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> I think it's important also, not just, you know, obviously we're going to, we're speaking more from the NACSW point of view, but regardless, you know, there are a lot of different organizations out there that offer a nose work slash scent work type uh, competitive um, activity, uh, and they all have different guidelines and rules, and regardless of whichever route somebody chooses, they need to make sure that they understand what the parameters are. It's important to know the rules of any organization, and we, our rules are built around what our goals were and what we hoped to develop and provide for people and their their companion animals and you know somebody else may have a different set of goals and i think they're it's just apples and oranges but that we have a certain way of defining things based on that idea of not making assumptions about what's happening with odor right that speaks exactly. to something that we, we have you know been talking about internally that come to how you define inaccessible hides and what is sourcing mean and you know how elevated is fair and are is it harder for the little dogs or what about the dogs who can't go into tight spaces or small spaces like there the conditions change so much at all because all of these environments are constantly new that we're battling the parameters of the environment and what that does to the things we are establishing as the quote unquote rules for each level of trial. So that's, that's really our big challenge as an yeah. organization. And one of the things that we're doing to, you know, we're hoping to continue our education in that direction. That's awesome. And I, I do want to give you all a lot of credit for how communicative you are with your membership and that you do offer so many opportunities for people to continue learning. And I hope that everyone takes up on it, that this is a addicting activity once you can see it for what it is. And once you can see the dogs really lean into it and be like, this is so awesome that I get to be a dog and that you can learn from the dog, which is so awesome. And you can find co-patriots. We're all like, oh my God, I can't look at any new space now without thinking about what, where I could put hides, what could happen? <laughs> That's fun, right? That's fun. And no matter whether or not you are competing or if you are doing enrichment, or if you're just trying to do something where you're trying to improve yourself as a dog owner. And you're like, I heard about this nose work thing and I think I want to give it a whirl. I hope that everyone can look into it a little bit more and look at it through this lens. But I do want to tip my hat to all of you because I know from the very limited things that I do, it's exhausting. <laughs> and I know yeah. that you all work very, very hard. You're very dedicated about this. So I just want to thank you for granting us the opportunity to have this activity that means so much to so many, but truly for the dogs has just been absolutely incredible. And as an instructor seeing particularly the scared, nervous, shut down little dogs just blossom and see them light up 
is a gift that I can't thank you enough more. So thank you both very much for that. Um, as we're wrapping up, was there anything that you wanted to talk about as far as anything you wanted people to think about or things you have coming up, events that you're doing, anything you would like to share? Well, I think right now we're on the, uh, I don't know about on the trial side. I know on the education side, we're um, already starting to plan out 2024 and we are doing two new instructor courses next year. So uh, that's, you know, exciting. And, you know, obviously everything that we do is to, for, in the furtherance of the mission of some, this being a dog driven activity and sport. And I think, you know, but that also, like you were saying earlier, it's not, dog driven at the expense of the human, but it's in furtherance of our understanding of who the dogs are and and really kind of stepping into their worlds more more so than not. So thanks a lot for you know having this and, and uh, wanting to take some time to chat with both of us. Yeah, it was a whole lot of fun. Amy, did you have anything yeah. that you wanted to add? Yeah, I'm just on the trial side. I wanted to say that we are working behind the scenes to create more interdepartments and interdiscipline cohesion between the COs, the membership, the judges to, to help people understand what the standards are. And so one of the things we're kind of working on behind the scenes is to, we're gonna be releasing a series probably through the Did You Know of helping kind of remind people of what are the parameters and the intent behind the different levels. So you could go read the rule book right now and read exactly what the level requires, but we want to remind the membership of what's the intent behind that and what are the things you might need to be aware of as you go forward. And that we're also working on our judges program to be more in sync with our COs so that we get kind of better results at the trial of the COs and the judges really working together. In some of the other venues, they do things a little differently, but the CO is really the one who is responsible for the whole picture at an ACSW trial. So even though, you know, it's uh, it's not that the judge isn't important, where the judge's expertise is, is to take into account the varying conditions that happen at trial and make that judgment call about where there is some wiggle room for things based on the changing environmental conditions. So I, I just wanted to say that we have like lots of uh, video samples and more definitive examples coming. We've, I know there've been a few little things posted, but we're, we're, you're about to see this year, a lot more stuff going out to membership to, to help people think about how to train. And so they can feel a little bit more sure about what to expect from the design of the searches as well as the you know how how they're going to be judged that's amazing and again the amount of effort that all of this takes is astronomical on top of also you know trying to run businesses have full-time jobs have families actually have a life yes everyone who's listening these people do have lives outside of this <laughs> maybe they actually like to eat or shower or sleep but so i really do appreciate like everything <laughs> Well, we appreciate what you're doing to further education for Scent Work, and we, we love that you are really out there making sure to provide a lot of opportunity for people to have learning, especially, you know, with remote learning and people that are living places where they aren't near instructors, so they don't have groups of people. It really helps create a community, and that's what we, 
that's really another thing that was behind what what we hope to do was just you know bring people together through their dogs really create this community of people i think that's kind of you know aside from all the the trial and dog spot sport stuff the dog trialing and uh, training stuff is the the community the international community that has developed you know between the trialing side and the the nacsw canine nose work education side this uh connection of people in so many different places that i never even had a chance you know all my years of doing this to to experience and i think that's one been one of the greatest pieces of the whole uh journey so far is the connection of people uh, as well as their dog so um anyway Thank you so much, Diane. It's been always, it's always fun chatting with you. Well, thank yes. you very much. I really do appreciate it. I again want to sincerely thank Amy and Jill for both having this conversation with me and also being so instrumental in creating this sport and activity for being so mindful and thoughtful with how they implement different programs and initiatives through NACSW. Really, the gift that they've given us and our dogs is pretty spectacular. <laughs> and I really do appreciate everything that they've done. And I hope that this gives a little bit more of a insight as far as the efforts that they are putting in on behalf of their organization, but also how everything is a little bit more complicated as far as network is concerned as an activity, that our dogs are trying to play this game that we are putting together, and that it can really take a little bit more time and attention and thought on our part in order to ensure that we're designing a game that our dogs can successfully play and that it can be really exciting and exhilarating for us to try to understand odor a little bit more, to be able to meet our dogs more than halfway, to really get a glimpse into their amazing world, and to really find the joy in this activity, regardless of how it is that we are doing it. It is important that we keep those things in mind, because <laughs> I think all of that is really helpful. But as always, we'd love to hear from you. So we'll be posting this episode up on our website, as well as our social media. So you're always more than welcome to post any questions or comments there. Looking forward to having more outside speakers. So again, you're not just listening to me pontificate about things. <laughs> as always, if there is someone in particular that you would like for us to talk to, or if you wanted someone to be featured in our spotlight series, an individual or a business that's giving back to the community, please let me know. I would love to speak with them. The more that we can highlight people and businesses and organizations that are giving back, the happier I am. <laughs> but thank you so much for listening. Happy train. We look forward to seeing you soon.